Thank you for listening to this teaching from Table Church. We're in a series called 365 Forgiveness, where we're learning that forgiveness is not just a one-time event, but a lifestyle. We're glad that you're joining us as we look at one of the most world-changing ideas imaginable. And as always, if you need anything, don't hesitate to reach out at hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Sarah Plowman. I've attended Table Church for just over a year now, ever since I moved to Des Moines. There are so many things that I like and appreciate about Table Church, like the ministry center and the partnership with Edmonds Elementary and the discipleship pathway and serving in kids ministry. Um, But the thing I want to highlight right now is table groups. I love my table group. It's not just the thing that I do on a Wednesday night to check the box. We dig into scripture together and it really comes alive. And I was super impressed early on by how just vulnerably and openly everyone would share both prayer requests and pray for one another. And that has laid a foundation for um, like brothers and sisters in Christ who are, you know, also friends and community. You know, we've we go on bike rides. We've gone to the farmer's market out to eat. We go camping. Um, So just like life on life things in Des Moines. And also they were the ones who reached out um, when I needed like a ride to church or to table group early on when I didn't have a car or when my water heater went out when I was hosting family from out of town. They were the ones that said, yes, come over, take a hot shower, bring your laundry. So um, they've been phenomenal. And if you're not in a table group, I don't know why not. You should get into a table group. So happy birthday, Table Church. Um, so my favorite Sarah Plowman memory that you, she just heard Sarah on the video was when her first Sunday she ever came to Table Church, she didn't have a car and so she took a bus to get here. And that was the week that she moved to a new city, by the way, as well. So that, that's the kind of person that I, that I want to see more of. Like, I can't, I don't have a car. This is not going to stop me. I'm going to take a bus to church. That's what I'm talking about right there. Hey, good to have you all here today. Thank you for coming. Um, would you pull out your Bible with me? We're going to be looking in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, you can put your hand up and uh, somebody will bring you one. Uh, I'm pretty sure Megan will. <laughs> And uh, if you need one, if you don't own a Bible, you can just keep the one that we hand you. We're just grateful that you are here and we want you to have a copy of the scriptures. So uh, be sure to let us know. So Colossians 3 verses 12 through 14. By the way, my name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor here at Table Church. If you're new, uh, we are so glad that you have come and joined us today. Here's what Paul writes in this passage. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Before I dive in here, I want to mention that on October 21st, that's a Friday night, 6.30 p.m., we're going to have a worship night here at the Playhouse. It'll be down in the Kate Goldman Theater, which is where our elementary-age kids meet. Uh, We had one of these once before. It was awesome. It's just a really wonderful, more intimate environment for us to gather and worship together. And so we're going to chase after God's heart together that night. Hope you can come. Mark in your calendars. We'll see you there. But today we start a new sermon series. It's going to be a short one, just three weeks. It's a short series on a big topic. We're going to be talking about forgiveness today. And in my experience, uh, forgiveness 
can be a rather explosive subject. And I mean this in both positive and negative ways. Because on the one hand, somebody who has been deeply hurt in their life perhaps isn't ready to forgive yet. They can perhaps react against this notion of forgiveness and say, maybe think to themselves at least, why should I forgive after what they've done to me? On the other hand, forgiveness, when it does occur, is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. I've been in the room before where forgiveness has happened, true, genuine, deep, and profound reconciliation, and I'm not sure that I've ever been in a holier place than that. It seems to me that true Christ-centered forgiveness might be one of the greatest weapons we have against the schemes of the enemy. And if that's the case, then it's no surprise that the devil works overtime to try to distort the meaning of forgiveness, to try to minimize the importance of it. And so our series is called 365 Forgiveness because we're trying to convey the idea here that it's not just a one-time event. Forgiveness is a lifestyle. It's, it's the, the life that that you would expect a person to have who follows Jesus. Forgiveness is simply what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, one verse that I think um, really gives us a good foundation for a life of forgiveness is Galatians 2.20. It says this. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is a really important foundational verse, so much so that I think we should just take a minute and memorize it together, shall we? The kids memorize verses every week. Why not the grown-ups? So let's memorize the passage today. It's Galatians 2.20. Say it with me. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20. The kids do this, I think, something. Galatians 2.20. All right, let's do it one more time. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians Got it. Nice work. See, central to Christian belief is this notion that we've died to ourselves, which means that there's no more room for pride anymore in my heart. Look, forgiveness is simply the regular posture of a person who has died to themselves. That's the kind of person that doesn't hold grudges because they have no place in their heart to put them anymore. Their heart is too full of love. They've died to themselves. Now, I should warn you that I'm guessing most of the people in this room today are in general agreement that forgiveness is a good thing. We'd give forgiveness in general a thumbs up, you know? We think it's a good notion at the very least. But there are people uh, alive today and in history who, who don't agree. They think that Jesus, forgiveness in the way of Jesus is is not only strange or bizarre, but downright morally wrong. For example, the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. He didn't just think that Christianity was wrong, he thought it was morally repugnant. He believed that teachings like forgiveness elevated that which is weakest in humanity, and that it taught people to subdue their strength. So for him, Christianity and its emphasis on things like forgiveness, laying down yourself, that was nothing more than a sickness that we need to overcome. And Karl Marx believed that Christianity was a subtle strategy by an elite class to subdue the working class, to keep them in line. Teachings like the last shall be first and things like that, these are really nothing more than an attempt uh, to pacify those who are last and to keep those who are first on top. 
And so for Marx, Christian teaching on forgiveness, this is a, it's simply a power play designed to calm the anger of the marginalized masses. Now, I would, obviously, I would beg to differ about that with Nietzsche and Marx personally, but when it comes to Christianity, I would say that maybe they've grasped the explosiveness of forgiveness in a way that many Christians have not. Like, they understood the radical nature of it. They knew that this teaching of Jesus is more than a religious platitude fit for decorative China or social media posts. It's explosive. It has world-changing power. They understood this. They just didn't like it. So, let's start at the beginning. Why forgive? Why should we forgive? I mean, after all, Nietzsche and Marx didn't think we should, at least not in the way Jesus taught. So why not simply stay mad or seek revenge? Why not prove your superiority over people? I want to investigate a few, re- a few reasons why we should forgive, or at least a few popular reasons why perhaps we might say we should forgive. And the first common answer to the question, why should I forgive, is simply this, because God says to. This is one that someone might give. Reason one is because God says to. And we might call this reason the divine command reason because it's simply a divine command. God says to do it, so you should do it. And that's absolutely true. God does command us to forgive. Jesus says we should forgive 70 times 7. In other words, just keep forgiving. It's basically what that means. Our verse that we read today says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. There we have it, a biblical command to forgive. However, simply thinking of this as a divine command isn't quite right because the Bible isn't just giving us a list of rules. The Bible's vision ultimately isn't to just get us to conform our behavior to a standard. It's to help us to become the kind of people who want to do what is good and right. That's what the Bible is trying to do. It's not ultimately about what we should do, but who we can become by the power of God. So that means that the divine command reason isn't quite enough. And after all, forced forgiveness usually isn't real forgiveness. I know this because I have three kids and I often issue my own divine command when it comes to forgiveness. And they can usually tell this wasn't genuine. This means nothing, you know. Uh, But sometimes there's something to be said about forming habits of the heart Uh, that we as parents try to help our kids do. But nonetheless, the divine command, just because God says to forgive, um, if that's all we've got, that's not quite enough to live out this kind of revolutionary way of life, is it? There has to be something more. And so there's a second uh, popular reason why we should forgive, and it goes something like this. Well, because it will make you feel better. You should forgive because it will make you feel better. And uh, maybe we'll call this like the therapeutic reason. Um, it's, this reason says forgiveness is to be preferred because there's all sorts of benefits for your life. It's good for your mental health. It is a way of letting go of the burdens, the wounds that you're carrying. It's a way to be free of the grip, uh, of the person who hurt you, maybe. Um, you know, this is widespread pastors and preachers, and, uh, they use this all the time. We, we often say these kinds of things because, well, it's true. Like, it really is true. Like, there, there is incredible freedom to be found in letting go of some of the grudges that we carry. I'm, I'm not a therapist. I'm guessing some therapists will suggest that people forgive as well because there is genuine freedom to be found. It's a burden off of our shoulders when we can learn to let go of some of these grudges that we hold. But here's the thing. Neither of the two reasons for forgiveness that we've looked at so far 
are explicitly Christian, are they? Lots of religions believe in forgiveness. Any good Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or Jew will support forgiveness, will tell you that you should forgive. Lots of therapists will tell you that you forgive, but maybe not necessarily for explicitly Christian reasons. So what is a Christian's reason for forgiveness? And I, again, I want to reiterate, those reasons aren't necessarily wrong, but as a follower of Jesus, they're not quite complete. See, for, for a Christian, forgiveness is so much bigger than either of those things. And here's what I would say. Forgiveness shows us ultimate truth. That's what we believe. We believe that forgiveness shows us ultimate truth. I want to draw your attention to a little word in our passage today. It's the very first, we read, very first word we read in our passage, verse 12. It's the word, therefore. Therefore, Paul uses the word all the time, and he's connecting what he's about to say to what he's already said. So we've got to go backwards and see what he already said. So we're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter. It's the first three verses of Colossians 3. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And here's the part I want you to hear. For you died. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So we see here that when Paul says to forgive, it's more than just, you know, a technique to help you feel better. It's more um, than just a divine command. It's, it's rooted in a deep truth that, look, you're dead now and you're alive in Christ. And here's the thing about dead people is they don't hold grudges. I've never seen it happen. You could try it sometime. Just go to a cemetery and just hurl your worst insults Nobody's going to get mad. That's the thing about dead people. They don't get mad. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, yeah, Phil, you're being kind of silly here. Um, and you're thinking, well, yeah, but Phil, I might be like spiritually dead to myself. But here in the real world, I got stuff I got to deal with. Let's analyze that statement for a second. What do you mean by the real world? When we say real world, what are we talking about there? Well, what we're talking about is this world that we can see and we can touch and we can hear, that we can perceive with our physical senses. That's what we mean when we say the real world. But, you know, it seems to me that Paul thinks that, that there's another world that's actually more real than this one. In fact, I would say that Paul thinks that this physical world is something of a shadow compared to this other world that he points us to. And it seems to me that the New Testament writers believe that this other world, this more real world, is totally unlike our world. It's a place where Jesus stands in victory over sin and evil and death. It's a place where God's love wins. And the Bible says, look, that world is breaking into our world. This is what happens at the resurrection. This is the, the foundation of the Christian hope, our eschatological vision. That's the fancy word for where we think this whole thing's going. It's this idea there is another world that is more real than this one, and it is staging like a silent takeover of this one, and it's happening through the church, powered by the Holy Spirit. That's like what Christians believe that there is a world that's more real than this one. So look, Jesus even says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, there is a silent revolution happening in your midst. There is another world that's breaking into this one, coming to take it over. 
and he could see it in the resurrection of Jesus. It's a moment where God, God's reality penetrated into ours. And we're called to expand that and bring it and make it even more real in this place. When I was in high school, there was a movie that came out that changed movies. It's called The Matrix. And uh, it's not a Christian movie per se, but I don't know what it was. Like, Christians love this movie. In fact, it's like they made it. They didn't know it. They made it for like 90s and early 2000s youth pastors. I could get college credit at my Christian university by watching it and writing a paper on The Matrix. Like, we love The Matrix. And um, so there's this part where the main character, Neo, he's awoken to the fact that the world we live in is actually like a computer simulation, that the real world is run by these evil machines and they use the bodies of humans as batteries to power the machines and they're feeding us a false consciousness called the matrix and we all think that's the real world, but it's actually not. And there's this scene where, where Neo is given the option, he can take one of two pills, either a red pill or a blue pill. If he takes the blue pill, then he'll wake up back in his bed, have forgotten all of this ever happened, go on about his normal life in the matrix but if he takes the red pill, then he goes down the rabbit hole. And he's going to see what's really behind the curtain. And it, to me, it's like the New Testament is like God kind of pulling back the curtain or like God giving us a red pill and saying, this is what's really happening. This is what's really true. Except in this case, the real world isn't run by evil machines. It's a place where Jesus is defeating the forces of death and darkness and evil. Like that's the real world. You see, the world we live in, this world that we can touch and see, it says things like, I got to protect what's mine, but that world says you're dead and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This world, Wall Street stands at the center of it. Wall Street runs this world. The cross stands at the center of that world. It's the complete inversion of this world. And look, look the, the life of a disciple of Jesus is simply a life spent learning how to live into that world and out of this one so that they can bring that world here. You see that? There's a double movement that, happened, that has to happen with a disciple. It's not an escape from this world. It's a bringing of another world here. It's a transformation of this world. In 1970, an African-American pastor and civil rights activist named John Perkins was brutally beaten by white police officers. His crime was simply that he had gone to, to the jail in order to paste, post bail for his friends who had been arrested while protesting. They mercilessly beat him to within an inch of his life. This was only a few years after a white police officer shot and killed his brother. A few months later, the stress of that beating would give John Perkins a heart attack. He tells a story of how, though, he came to see the same hate in his heart that he could see in the eyes of the people who beat him. And he prayed this prayer one day. He said, Lord, if I ever get out of this jail alive, I want to preach a gospel that is strong enough to destroy some of this madness. Because he understood that the gospel that we often preach isn't strong enough to destroy that kind of stuff. And he understands that this hatred that he was feeling is actually the currency that our world seems to run on. I mean, what is government other than really kind of trying to negotiate and manage the deep hatred that humans have towards each other? And so he said, if there is a gospel that can defeat that, that's what I want. 
That's what I want to preach. And God gave him his wish. He would go on. He's in his 90s now, but Perkins has... um, his work has given rise to the Christian Community Development Association, which has labored for racial reconciliation and healing and hope in some of the most difficult parts of our country. Um, and th- there's a new book out. I don't remember who wrote it. I haven't read the book, but I just like the title. It's called Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. I don't know about the book, but I can tell you the title is true. It's called Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. Like John Perkins did not just happen. He did not just become John Perkins. It was a process of leaning into the spirit, of doing really, really hard inner work of God helping him see the ways that he was like his attackers. Dallas Willard's measuring stick for how we grow spiritually. If you ever want to know how you're doing in your spiritual growth, he said, ask yourself this question. Do I spontaneously respond in love toward my enemies? Do I spontaneously respond in love toward my enemies? He said, that, that's how we can measure our spiritual growth. How's your answer to that question? I got a little ways to go, I'm just gonna be honest. And so let's live every day in a way that we might become beautiful people. The kind of people who our passage today describes. I mean, listen to this again. Isn't this the kind of, the kind of life that you want? Isn't this how you want to look? It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Isn't that exactly the kind of person that you want to be? The kind of home you want, the kind of family you want, the kind of people you want to raise. But remember, beautiful people don't just happen. Living a kingdom life of forgiveness where offense doesn't stick to you, but it it bounces off of you. Like you you can't get there through some Herculean effort It starts in the secret places of your life, deep inside your heart, in the early mornings when no one's watching. It starts there. It starts by genuinely in your heart wishing that person well. And so here's what I I think is the best way to become that kind of person. Here's where I think it starts. It starts by learning to repent first. If you want to be a forgiving person, become a repenting person. Practicing the discipline of repentance means that I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong and I lay my life out before God regularly and say, God, show me the areas that I need to do better. Show me the blind spots in my life, the, the places where I'm just, I'm just not doing the things you would have me do. The fifth step of Alcoholics Anonymous is this. You have to admit to yourself, to God, and to others the exact nature of your wrongs. And I've known alcoholics that have gone back decades and gone to a person that they haven't talked to in years and said, I need to tell you the exact nature of my wrongs against you. Like, no wonder that program is so transformative. Can you imagine doing that? It would be humbling, but it might also be amazing. Learn to repent and you'll learn to forgive because repentance is more than just I'm sorry. Repentance is like a complete change of direction. It's, it's not only saying, look, I was wrong, I'm sorry I did that. Repentance is saying, well, hey, apparently I'm the kind of person who would do that and that needs to change. Whenever a celebrity does something they shouldn't do and the masses come after them, you know, they say something or whatever, uh, sometimes they'll, they'll get on Twitter or they'll, you know, say in public, you know, I'm sorry, 
that's not who I really am. That's not who I really am. And it's true that sometimes we do things that aren't really characteristic of our usual patterns of behavior, but I mean, if you do something, then that's in you somewhere, right? Like that had to have a, that started somewhere. Jesus talks about the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, I think we probably expand that out. The overflow of the heart, you do all the things you do, you know? Like it starts somewhere. And so maybe repentance is more than just saying, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. It's, what is it inside of me that caused me to do that? God, by your grace and mercy, would you help me know and heal me? How can I make this right? That's what repentance looks like. The Greek word for forgiveness is the word charizomai. Charizomai. The Greek word for grace is the word charis. Do you hear the similarity? Charizomai, charis. Forgiveness is like the, the verb form of grace. To forgive someone is to grace somebody. And grace is simply a gift you don't deserve. When we forgive somebody, we're giving them something they don't necessarily deserve. That's what forgiveness looks like. Now, why would we do that? Well, because we were given the same by God. And so my hope is that we can remember that we died, that we are hidden with Christ in God, that dead people don't hold grudges, that offenses, they bounce off of a dead person. Our prideful old self has been nailed to the cross, Paul says. And here's something I think we could do this week in our homes as a little exercise. I think we could take our passage, it's five verses long, and, and we could just focus on one part of it each day or or week, like maybe tonight at the dinner table, we just take the, the phrase, three words, God's chosen people. Paul says that we are God's chosen people. What would it do to look across the table at your sibling, your spouse, your child, and say, God shows you. God shows you. And then tomorrow, we move on to the, the next part. Maybe we go in the part that says, clothe yourselves with compassion. Look, I love that imagery. Who doesn't want to be clothed with compassion? I'm usually clothed in exasperation or something. That's usually what my clothes look like. I want to be clothed in compassion. Let's talk about the ways we can clothe ourselves in compassion. I love the phrase too. It says, bear with each other. Paul writes, bear with each other. The Greek word for that is simply to endure patiently. It's just learn to endure one another patiently. I want to do that better, you know? So what are the ways that we can that we can infuse this passage in our life. This passage is so dense that if we just did like 10% of what Paul says there, it would change the world. <laughs> like it's so dense, there's so much there. And so in your homes and at your tables, as you forgive each other, look, you're showing one another ultimate truth. You're pulling back the curtain. You're, you're, sh- you're taking the red pill, you know? Like you're saying, this is what the world really looks like. It's a, it's a world of, of self-sacrificial love. And that doesn't just come out of me. That comes out of like the ground of all being God himself. That's what he's like. That's what he's like. When you do this, you're living out what's really real. When we talk about the real world and the way things really are, look, no, it's not. This world will pass away. This is a shadow. There's a real world out there that we're called to live in and to show. So let's start living in that world more. So next week, we will have a guest speaker. She'll come and she's going to talk on this topic as well. Um, And her name is Joanne Lyon. Uh, Joanne uh, is the former general superintendent of our denomination, the Wesleyan Church. 
Um, that might be the smallest thing she's done in her life, honestly. Like she, she started World Hope International, which is one of the biggest humanitarian aid and development uh, organizations in the world. Um, she has met with and advised numerous presidents, both American and other countries. Um, she has been to over 80 countries in her life. And she has some stories of miraculous ways that God is moving. I anticipate we will probably hear some stories of how God is moving throughout the world uh, when she comes and shares. Uh, but I'm just telling you this because I want you to not miss it, okay? You, you, whatever you have going on next week, you should cancel it, and you should come to church, okay? I only can say that when I'm not preaching because otherwise it will not look so good, would it? You, sh you don't want to miss Joanne Lyon. Um, she's she's going to be... Uh, Really, really wonderful. And so I look forward to seeing you then. Happy birthday, Table Church. We are so grateful uh, for, this, for this ride, this crazy roller coaster journey that we've been on and the fact that you are with us. So we're going to go celebrate. That sound okay? Do you want me to keep preaching or should we go eat some burgers and stuff? Let's do it. Let's go have a barbecue. Let me pray for us and then we'll, and we'll be ready to go. Oh, God, we ask that... Um, Boy, this is a hard topic because it's usually the kind of thing where you'd want to have an individual conversation with somebody, and that's maybe the weakness of preaching is that it's just kind of the same words applied to everybody, and some people can be in different places when they hear it, and that can mean our interpretations can be a little different. But Lord, I just pray that you take what I said and you just help people to find the gospel truth in it, to find your heartbeat in it and your love in it, and that, Lord, that we'd be, we'd be inspired to be more like you, to want that world where we can clothe ourselves with compassion, where we can endure patiently with each other, where we can forgive as you forgave us. And so empower us to be those kinds of people today, I pray. And Lord, may Table Church be that witness in this city for many years to come. We love you, Jesus, and we give you all the glory and thanks for what you've done here in your name. Amen.